So you may have heard me talk about him before, but many of you know uh, NBA uh, Hall of Fame coach uh, Pat Riley. He has been, he's won several championships. Oh, I hear some Lakers fans over here. Um, he's not only won championships with the Lakers, but also as a, as a coach and even with the Miami Heat, he's won over 10 championships as both a player and a coach. And he was interviewed one time, they sat him down for an interview and uh, asked him the question, why do most championship teams not repeat winning the championship the following year? And his answer was quite profound. He talked about how, you know, when your team is kind of geared towards winning that championship, you've got the talent, you have the staff, you have the, the plans and execution, there's this complete focus on this one singular goal together to win the championship. But the problem is, once you do, that cohesiveness, the hard work that the group began to, that was putting in together begins to fray. Because what happens is, once you hit that, that high of that ultimate goal, egos and attitudes and team chemistry start to turn toxic. Players start to show their entitled side. They start to stay, uh, focus less on we and more on me. And so what they find is, in his experience, that even the most talented teams end up getting dethroned, not by a better team on the outside, but by a fragmented team on the inside. And I want to challenge you to consider, do you know that the same thing happens in churches? in the sense that we may experience the power and the presence of God as a focus for our common goal of Christ, but that it's very easy for churches to fray over time when the attitude shifts from we to focusing on me. And so how do we prevent that? Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're in this series called Clear where we're learning in a world of confusion and conflict to be able to see life through the countercultural lens of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, he writes to this cool, hip, urban church in the city of Corinth to remind them, instead of being blinded by the values of the world, to see clearly through their identity in Christ, that as you are loved and forgiven and transformed through the cross, that he guides us and grows us in holiness and unity as a church together that is distinct from the world. And he's been showing us how do you practically apply that in areas such as sin and conflict and relationships and sex. And so we found in chapters 8 through 10 that in following Jesus together, whatever you do, Paul counsels us, do it all for the glory of God and the good of others. But the problem in chapters 11 through 14 is that the Corinthians are not glorifying God together that as they gather, they experience all kinds of disorder and discord as they gather for worship together. And so today what he's going to address with us is how can the Corinthians serve Jesus, serve each other as a church together without getting derailed by petty conflicts and personal agendas. So we're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. 
and I will show you a still more excellent way. So let's stop right there for a moment. We're still talking about spiritual gifts. For those of you who haven't been with us, spiritual gifts, they're not natural talents or skills, but they're God-given, God-empowered abilities from the Holy Spirit to build each other up in knowing and worshiping Jesus. And so we see here in verse 27, we're reminded that the church is like a human body, that it requires the diversity of our gifts individually, working together interdependently for the church to function properly as a healthy and holy body of Christ. And in verse 28, Paul lists some, not all, of the God-given spiritual gifts. And I want you to pay attention. Did you notice that he's ranking them? Not in value, because all of these gifts are necessary, but in how much benefit they bring to, the, to building up the body of Christ. So first he lists uh, apostles, those who establish the church. Secondly, those who pro prophetically proclaim God's word, and those who teach how to apply God's word. And then those who are able to do miraculous things or healing to encourage the church of the presence and power of God. And then he talks about a helping spirit of service and then the administrative spirit of leadership. These are all various spiritual gifts that are necessary and required, but he's showing us kind of an order of how they build up the church. And then last on his list, he puts tongues. Now, if you don't know what that is, that's the Holy Spirit-inspired ability to speak a language that is not known by the speaker. It might be speak, being able to speak in a foreign language that you have not studied, as we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 4. Or it could be speaking in the unintelligible language of angels for the purpose of worship that we're going to see in chapter 13, verse 1. And I want you to notice that it is listed last, not because it's the least gift, but because it's the problem gift in Corinth. What I mean is that starting in verse 3 of this chapter, of the Corinthians, they've been treating this particular spiritual gift as if it's superior to others because of the extraordinary nature of its supernatural appearance. As if, like, look at what I can do that other people cannot. And so in verse 29 to 30, Paul rhetorically asks, does everyone possess the same gift? Does everyone have the gift of, of apostleship or, or prophecy? No. Does everyone have the gift of tongues? No. Because God intentionally assigns diversity because each gift is necessary. But I want you to see in verse 31, the beginning, he says that instead of elevating the sensational ones to edify yourself, Desire the foundational ones that edify others. These are the higher gifts because the goal is to build others up in the church, not just build up yourself. <coughs> Excuse me. And so the point here in this part of the passage is that in our God-given diversity of spiritual gifts, you and I want to seek being fruitful over being flashy. What I mean by that is the goal is not to gain your spiritual status, which is what the Corinthians were very interested in, but to garner spiritual growth in others. And so we want to start off this morning by asking ourselves, what is our motivation when we participate in the body of Christ? Some of us, we come to serve in the church, and there's, there's this gaping hole of insecurity. I need to be noticed. I need to be acknowledged and thanked and praised. Other people, on the far end of, the, of the, the spectrum, I don't want to participate at all. I don't want to get involved in serving. I don't want to get entangled in getting involved because I want to avoid the expectations and frustrations of dealing with people. But Paul wants to challenge us this morning. Would you be motivated by glorifying Jesus by helping others draw close to him? Now, the problem here is 
that sounds really good. Yes, we should be focused on glorifying God by serving other people, but the reality is for us as human beings, we deal with a lot of mixed motives. Isn't that true? For, uh, I get mixed feelings about serving others, but also wanting to serve my own interests. Of course, everybody likes a little bit of affirmation. There's nothing wrong with that. So Paul tells us, okay, I know it's hard to be able to focus on the holy side of being able to serve the Lord and use your gifts. Let me show you how, in verse 31, let me show you a more excellent way. Chapter 13, verse 1. Actually, I'm going to read the last part of, of, of uh, the last chapter so you can see how it flows into one conversation. And now I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. <coughs> Excuse me. This passage, as often as it's preached at weddings, I've preached it at weddings, is not talking about romance. Instead, what's happening here is it's sandwiched between two chapters that are talking about spiritual gifts, chapter 12 and then chapter 14. And so what's happening here is that Paul is talking about how does this apply how do we apply love in the body of Christ? How do we apply it in your relationships with people here as you serve one another, as you minister to each other? And Paul's going to start by addressing this controversy over the gift of tongues in verse 1. Whether you have a gift to speak in a human language or an angelic one, if it's not done out of the love of Christ for the person hearing it, your incredible gift of words are as unheard and unhelpful as a banging cymbal over and over. It makes no difference what you're saying. It's just noise. Verse 2, even if you possess these higher gifts that he was talking about for growing a church, powerful gifts of prophecy or wisdom or knowledge from God or supernatural faith in God that can accomplish the impossible for God, but you practice it without the love of Christ for others, that doesn't make me still useful or a little bit less beneficial, Paul says, I amount to nothing in the kingdom of God. Verse 3, even if you are incredibly self-sacrificial, you give away all you own for the sake of the poor, you give up your very life for the sake of the gospel, and yet, did you know people can do those kind of things without the love of Christ for people in the body of Christ? Then the net gain is zero. I want you to let that sink in for a minute. Because the main idea that Paul is going to teach us in this whole passage this morning is that the value of what we contribute to the body of Christ is directly measured by how much it's done in the love of Christ for others. And so when we look at a church, we look at a ministry, we look at our own contribution and participation in the life of a church, <coughs> it's not the size of the congregation. It's not how much people like the music or the preaching. It's not how strategic we are with neighborhood outreach. And it's even not how much we sacrifice for the sake of the community or for the sake of our ministry with your money and your time or your effort and with your life. 
but how much of what you do is done through the love of Christ for the people around you. <coughs> uh, many uh, Christians and even pastors were big fans of a church called Mars Hill in Seattle. It was a uh, fast-growing church that started out as a home Bible study and over a few years' time grew into this multi-site church in 15 locations across four states. At its height, there were 15,000 people attending a Mars Hill church every Sunday. And in fact, more than 260,000 people were tuning in to the sermon broad, a podcast every single week. 260,000. I don't think I even know that many people. And the meteoric rise of this church was all because of the dynamic preaching and strategic leadership of their pastor. But around 2014, stories started coming up to the surface. Stories of this pastor's abusive leadership, sometimes towards church members, like if there was a church member that that didn't follow what, what he taught or agreed with his teaching, you'd have them kicked out of the church. And then it started spreading towards stories of their leadership, that there were even elders and pastors in his leadership team. If they don't agree with the decision they make, he makes, gone. He would use a lot of cruelty and a lot of cruel words, and when he didn't like people, he would have them disappear from the church. And so you see, his gifting because he was so gifted and because God had, out of his mercy, blessed that church so much, it became a point of pride for him, where he felt he was able to look down on other people. A lack of love. And once those stories started to surface, by the end of that year, 2014, he had resigned from the church, and soon afterwards, they disbanded the entire network of Mars Hill Churches. You see, even the most gifted can become the most destructive when they're doing things, when they're using their gifts, divorced from the love of Christ, when the focus is on lifting ourselves up while stepping on the back of other people. And what we don't want to do is sit here pointing the finger at other people and evaluating what we see in the church around us, but may you hold up a mirror for a moment and examine yourself. When I am using my gifts my time, my effort to be involved in the church, to serve others in my family or in my ministry, how much of it's done for myself? What a good Christian I am. Or what a good parent I am. How much of it is done out of obligation? Maybe you come from a cultural background where you don't have to like doing things or enjoy doing things, but you do it because you're supposed to. And here's the telltale sign. If your involvement in your church, the way you serve your family, you're starting to feel some bitterness and resentment. That's usually a good sign that you're just doing things out of obligation. And how much of what we do is done out of the love of Christ for other people? Come on, Pastor Josh, you're kind of beating us up a little bit. So what does the love of Jesus really look like when we apply it in, in the family of Christ? Look, look, look at verse 4. Love is patient and kind Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or easily angered or resentful, which is keeping a record of wrongs. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Once again, not a commentary on marriage or love, in romantic love. But in verse 4, we see that the love of Christ is not just a feeling that you have on the inside. It is the action that you take on the outside. Did you notice that? That all these things are about how love is actively demonstrating the grace of Christ to each other in the body of Christ. It's active demonstration. That's the next slide. And so first, that kind of active demonstration of the grace of Christ is expressed in patience. That patience, what that looks like, is that even when there's differences between us, that I don't give up on you. You're worth the time and the effort to work at this. That's grace. That's what Jesus does with me. And that grace is expressed in kindness. That when we're showing grace towards someone, not because they deserve it, not because they earned it, but because they need it, just as Jesus does for us when he went on a cross. In verses 4 and 5, what love is not is it doesn't treat others as a competitor. I want you to hear that. You see, these two things, neither envying what you have and what you've accomplished, nor boasting in what I have and what I've accomplished. You see how both those things, envy and boasting, are treating someone as a competitor? That I wish that I had your spiritual gifts, your ministry, your family, your salary. Or check out mine and how much better mine is. Humble, humble brag about it. You see, so much strife within the church comes from comparing people as a competitor instead of loving them as a brother. Love is not seeing the other person as inferior in two ways. By one, by being arrogant, where you think higher of yourself, or being rude, where you think lower of someone else and treat them that way. But in both cases, whether you're being arrogant or being rude, both see someone as less than me, someone inferior to me. And when we do, it flows right into the next one. When we see someone as less than, then we'll tend to insist on our own way because they're not as important as my needs and my desires. And it's the very opposite of Jesus' humility and his self-sacrificial nature at the cross. Love doesn't make negative assumptions. You see those two things about irritable, being easily angered, and resentful? We're easily angered when we've already made up our mind about someone's motives and character. I'm irritable about you because I know that you're selfish. I know that you're stubborn. And so I get easily triggered by you because that's my assumption about you. Resentful, it's better in actually the NIV translation. Literally, the word there means to keep a record of wrongs, like to have an, a, an accounting book and logging all the wrong things this person has done against you. <laughs> and what that's like is it's like keeping a browser history of all the wounds this person has caused you so that the very next time, instead of giving them the benefit of the doubt, you autofill in your assumptions and your accusations. You did this. Okay, you hurt me. And you either did it on accident because you're an idiot or you did it on purpose because you're a jerk. Autofilling in my negative assumptions about a person instead of the fact that maybe they're having a bad day or maybe they accidentally said that or did that. And it's the very opposite. This kind of making negative assumptions is the opposite of forgiveness. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, that Jesus does not count our sins against us. And then finally in verse 6, love does not celebrate others' failures and sins. In other words, like when somebody messes up and then they suffer for it, 
Well, they got what they deserve. We don't celebrate people's failures and sins. Instead, we rejoice when they experience the truth of Christ that leads them to repentance, to forgiveness, and towards change. Paul tells us in verse 7 that Christian love, it has tenacity in the present to bear our differences, to endure the difficulties in the body of Christ because of its absolute confidence in the future. It believes in Jesus' love and justice and holiness will heal us, will transform us so we, that we never lose hope in what God can do in the family of Christ. And so I want you to hold up a mirror and really ask yourself, what areas do I struggle demonstrating the grace of Christ to someone in the family of Christ? Who are you seeing in the church family as a competitor, as inferior? Who are you making negative assumptions? Or whose, whose failures are you celebrating? Those are four ways that we can quickly see, am I demonstrating the grace of Christ? And above and overall, the one positive trait that he talks about is the grace of Christ is patient and kind with people. Okay, we can see why love is so valuable in the church, but why is that the measure of how we serve each other with the gifts, the spiritual gifts that God talks about? Why is that the measuring stick? Verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So in verse 8, Paul tells us that the love of Christ, that love never ends. That in the body of Christ, we value this grace-filled, Christ-like love because there's a permanency to it. We continue to practice it, in other words, into eternity, even when all other things pass away, including every spiritual gift. You see, there's coming a day that speaking prophecy, speaking in tongues, speaking knowledge is going to be finished and fulfilled. In verse 9 and 10, Paul says that they only unveil Christ in part, that their job is to point to a greater reality to come when we're going to experience perfection and joy and maturity in eternity with Jesus forever. So the goal of spiritual gifts is temporary. They're only working to point forward to the perfection to come. And so Paul gives us an analogy in verse 11 that you and I, our current life, our current spiritual gifts in this world, they're kind of like a little kid. And they're a little kid who speaks incompletely, who thinks simply, who maybe uh, reasons immaturely. In other words, they're limited. But when you grow up, you move on from less mature ways of thinking and doing things because there's been a lifetime of difference and change between now and then. And what Paul says, that is the same with spiritual gifts. 
They are limited. They only reflect now because our lives and our ministry on earth are the childhood compared to eternity with God. Verse 12, they are a foggy reflection of a better reality to come when we'll see Christ and know Christ and experience Christ and his kingdom and his family fully. Do you understand? <clears throat> Verse 13, he ends with, there's three things that characterize following Jesus. Three things spiritually that we possess and practice in the present. Faith, hope, love. But the greatest of these is which one? Love. Why? Because you see, faith has to do with the past. We trust what God has already said and done. We put our faith in his word and his prophecies and what the evidence we've seen in history. But there's coming a day that we no longer have to rely on history to know and trust him because we're going to see Christ face to face. So there's coming a day when faith will pass. Faith has to do with the past. Hope has to do with the future. That I trust the promises of what God is going to do ahead of me. But there's coming a day when we'll no longer be waiting to receive his promises because perfection and heaven will have fully arrived in our lives and in our world. So both these things pass away, but the only thing that's permanent once Jesus returns, ushering in the end of history, his reign for eternity, is that we will continue practicing the love of Christ towards one another forever because his love never ends. And so the last thing Paul wants us to get is that love is the enduring way that we serve one another in the body of Christ, both now and forever. And so I want us to take a brief moment to evaluate ourselves. You may attend church or a growth group weekly. You may serve and even give financially regularly. And may even share the gospel occasionally. But how do you know if anything you've done has lasting impact on the body of Christ? I will tell you, some of you give very, very generous financial gifts to the church. Some of you give so much of your time and effort and pour your blood, sweat, and tears into other people's lives. But if it's not done with the love of Christ, it's meaningless. Paul says that the only way is when we practice our gifts as we serve one another with the love of Christ for, for people, all those ways that it's outlined in verses 4 through 7. Many years ago, uh, I used to do some outside ministry outside the church, kind of as a side gig. And the uh, president of a Christian counseling organization asked me to run. Uh, they had a two-week uh, Christian summer camp that I would run every, every year. And uh, uh, my job was to do things like prepare the camp, you know, prepare, like, find speakers for it, recruit and train the counselors, um, organize fun activities, um, and I get, usually would preach the final night, night's message, because I like to give, you know, the big kind of boom uh, message, like, to, to really get into the hearts of kids. And so I did that for a few years, but I was always frustrated because, uh, because uh, there's one boy who always would attend every year, year in and year out, because they were the, pres the president of the organization's son. And so he would come every year to the youth program. He'd always show up late to every program. He would kind of mock the music because, you know, we weren't like the most, didn't have the most skilled musicians back then. He would skip the afternoon activities. He would fall asleep during the sermons. And so I came down pretty hard on this young man 
about you need to honor God and you need to honor your dad who's the president of this, who's organizing all this stuff and set a good, better example. Now, the last night of the camp, he walks in to the program one hour late. That means that the, we have this, a game activity for about 10 minutes. That means that uh, the worship time, about 20 minutes. That means about uh, 30 minutes into the message, which is almost the end of that, that, that message, that he, this, this guy walks in. And I'm trying so hard not to roll my eyes into the back of my head until I die. <laughs> this kid. But there was something about that moment where God was really convicting my heart. Instead of badgering him, instead of judging him, instead of looking down on him, instead of making assumptions, negative assumptions about him, I took him aside and just gently asked, are you all right? He's embarrassed. He confessed, I have some stomach problems tonight. I said, that's okay, how can I help? How, you know, do you need some medicine? Do you need to go lay down? And I, I kind of escorted him back to his room and, and sat with him, you know, let, trained the counselors well enough they could run the program without me. I sat with him for the night. Later on that night, uh, you know, as traditional in a lot of youth uh, retreats, there was a campfire. And I was surprised. Like, at, towards the end of the campfire, he raised his hand to say, ask if he could share. Because he's one of those kids I thought, he doesn't get anything out of retreats. He raised his hands and he said, you know, um, I think that I experienced the gospel a little bit. I was surprised by uh, Josh's kindness towards me. Now, before you think like, oh, Josh, then he continued on saying, because he's always so angry with me. (laughs) And he used the Chinese word for it, shong, which means like he's always so harsh or angry with me all the time. And I want to tell you, That moment really stuck with me. I've never forgotten it. Because what it taught me was that no matter how gifted I thought I was, no matter how well I planned, no matter how well I preached, no matter how many activities I organized, no matter how many camps I've run, that this kid, he couldn't hear Jesus through me. It was just a noisy gong. Until he knew that I loved him, that I cared about him in some way, And I think about that. I think about that kid. That night still sticks with me. And it really transforms how I do ministry and how I deal with life in general because, uh, to be very frank with you, I'm generally kind of an angry person. And so I'm constantly thinking back to that moment and it informs how I feel or how I ask myself, do leaders know that I care about them, not just when they're on stage, but when they're off stage? It makes me evaluate with myself, do people know Do people at church experience me being patient and kind with them when they get it right or even when they get it wrong? It makes me ask myself, when I'm disciplining my kids, do they know I'm doing it out of the love of Christ or just because I'm ticked off? We need to be clear about love as a priority in the body of Christ. Love is not just a feeling. Feelings ebb and flow. They're temporary. They're fickle. The love of Christ is not just an internal feeling. It's an external action, choosing to actively demonstrate the grace of Christ to each other in the body of Christ, even when you don't feel like it. And when you have trouble showing that kind of grace, I want you to remember the grace that you have received in Jesus. You see, this is how it uh, ties into the gospel. Let me read to you this passage but I'm going to plug in Jesus' name instead of love. Remember, this is what Jesus, how Jesus treats you. 
Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy nor boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way because he's humble. he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Jesus is not easily angered, nor does he keep a record of your wrong. He paid for every single one of them, all of our sin and selfishness at the cross. Jesus never rejoices over when you get what you deserve, but instead he gives you what you need and he rejoices when you experience the truth, his truth in his love. We want to be like our master and our savior, knowing that it's not our gifting, but our loving that builds something lasting in the body of Christ. So I want to invite you to take a quiet moment and bow with me in a word of prayer. And may God do some work in your heart this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty and conviction of your word. It's something we read, we've read perhaps many times, or we've heard many times. But we don't apply it where it's supposed to be applied. In the very family that you've given us. The family of Christ, the body of Christ. And this morning we ask that you would help us, God. I know most people in the congregation aren't so egocentric that they focus on being flashy, wanting recognition for themselves. But we do want to be fruitful. And so we ask humbly that you would change us, O oh God, that what we do to serve you, to serve one another, will be done with incredible grace kind of grace that we receive in Jesus. We pray that you would convict us this morning the ways that we do not show your grace when we're not patient or kind, when we treat people as competitors, as inferior, when we're not gracious in our assumptions or in our celebrations of others' failures. God, we know that this is what counts, this is what lasts. Wherever we need to change, would you convict us and speak to us this morning? May you do your work on our hearts. May we change not by our own effort or ability, but by the power and love of Christ in us. In Jesus' name.